Good morning, Dr. Philip George. Good morning, Belle. Good morning, JD. How are you? Good. I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're okay. We're surviving. Yes. <laughs> Dealing with the CMCO. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, and the rising I, numbers every day. I know. Oh I, I think we should stop looking at the numbers. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the important thing is to focus on our own safety and ensuring that we follow the, you know, the SOPs that are and stay safe essentially. Yeah. Because yeah. look at the numbers, does no good. I mean, and I'm only focusing on my bank account. The numbers are not going up there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to Mind Matters. We're discussing articles today. And the first article is about video games. Now, during the pandemic, I'm sure a lot of people have been turning to video games as a form of entertainment, not only for children or teenagers, but adults as well, right? But as parents, we try to stop our children from playing too much video games because we know that it's not good for their mental health and their mental growth, right? But this article actually says otherwise. So, Dr. How can video games be good for mental health when we all know that too much of it can cause someone to get addicted to it? Yeah. Well, actually, this really is an opinion piece. So I think we have to remember that this is the opinion of the author. Hmm. There is truth, however, that video games can be beneficial for some aspects of mental health, such as building autonomy, competence. And in those who you are playing with, uh, you know, if you're playing with others and all, it may develop a sense of connectedness, mm -hmm. especially during a lockdown, you know. So video gaming is actually a very popular leisure activity, especially among young adults. And the amount of time spent playing video games has increased steadily from about 5.1 hours per week in 2011 to 6.5 hours per week in 2017. Video gaming is actually known to have some benefits, like I mentioned, but also also, perhaps even in improving focus, multitasking, and developing working memory. And of course, in a pandemic, the opportunity to con connect with others. Mm. But it may also come with costs when it's used too heavily. By spending a predominant part of the day gaming, excessive video gamers are actually at, low, at risk of lower educational and career attainment. Yep. problems with peers and also lower social skills the degree of you know addictive video games use has actually been found to be related to personality traits like low self-esteem and low self-efficacy anxiety and aggression and even to clinical symptoms of depression and anxiety disorders so you know people who are maybe predisposed with this can actually maybe rely on video games as a way of coping Mm. But there are also consequences of overuse. And that can actually be things like lack of real-life friends, uh, being isolative, uh, stress and maladaptive coping, lower psychosocial well-being and loneliness, and a lot of psychosomatic problems. Actually, in the ICD-11 that is to be launched soon, they are including internet gaming disorder. Oh, wow, really? Addiction, yeah. And, you know, it, to make a diagnosis... You have to have three features for a period of 12 months, that, which includes impaired control over gaming, increased priority given to gaming, continuation or escalation of gaming, despite the occurrence of negative consequences. So in its essence, if it is, you know, sort of uh, built a balance, I mean, you have balance use and, you know, all the other activities are not given up. I think it, it actually may be a benefit. But once it goes beyond that, I think it has mental health problems. Now, Doctor, this next article is from Medical News Today. And there's a large study that finds that 
a clear association between fitness and also mental health, means physical fitness and mental health. But we all know that doing some form of physical activity is good for physical and mental health. But for someone who is maybe deep into their depression or other mental health disorders, are they still able to push themselves to do some form of exercise or do they need help? Yeah, well, actually, like as you mentioned, exercise helps prevent and improve a number of health problems, including high blood pressure, diabetes, arthritis. Research on depression anxiety shows that exercise actually causes a lot of psychological and physical benefits that mm-hmm. also improve mood and reduce anxiety. In fact, exercise is part of the therapy and the treatment that we prescribe to patients with depression and anxiety disorders. Uh, it is in fact beneficial to almost all mental health conditions because it releases internal endorphins or the feel good chemicals and then it stimulates your reward pathway making you feel a a sense of satisfaction Uh, and it can also distract your mind off worries so you know when you get away from that cycle of negative thoughts uh, that actually feed depression and anxiety also regular exercise can increase self-confidence when you achieve targets and you know it also aids in connecting with others when you are doing it together with others Mm -hmm. I often advise parents to exercise with their children because it's in exercise that the children feel more calm and less stressed that they can communicate more with uh, their parents and the relationship starts to improve. So it is true that you can especially, you know, if you have a moderate to severe depression, uh, it is true that it's difficult to immediately go out there and exercise. Yeah. That's why we typically advise that with antidepressants or other medication that we use, once it started to have its effect in that second or third week, when energy and motivation starts to lift, that's when patients need to force themselves out to go for exercise. We enlist family members or even, you know, uh, good friends to help and uh, encourage and accompany people to start their exercise routine. Uh, but basically, if they have a schedule that incorporates exercise, they help themselves in their whole process of recovery as well. What kind of exercises, uh, Doc, is good for someone who is on antidepressants? The type of exercise is typically aerobic. That's what we would usually advise. Uh, anaerobic exercise, like, you know, weights and those sort of things can actually increase stress so you need to combine it together with aerobic you know the other thing is maybe you want to look for something that actually incorporates breathing and you know maybe a bit of meditation and that's where yoga comes in as well it's been shown to be you know maybe a more holistic form of exercise as well so there are different variations but i think the important thing is to start and you know maintain a regular schedule with exercise this next article is about this research done at the university of missouri school of medicine and they found that cognitive behavioral therapy or cbt may improve sleep and potentially affect alcohol use outcomes among young adults who binge drinks and because of insomnia. Yeah. Now, CBT participants reported a 56% reduction in insomnia severity with moderate improvement in objectively assessed sleep efficiency. Now, mm-hmm. what is CBT and how does it help participants uh, who actually go for this therapy sleep better? Yeah, so cognitive behavior therapy is a treatment method that's used in treating people with mental health issues. Uh, it's one of the preferred treatments for depression and even for anxiety disorders. Uh, it is actually a common type of talk therapy or what we term as psychotherapy. The patient works with a psychiatrist or psychologist or counselor. 
in a structured way, attending a limited number of sessions. And it is specifically focused on changing thinking styles and modifying behavior. So that's why it's CBT. Cognitive is, you know, your thinking, your decision-making, your mm-hmm. judgment, and then behavior changes as well. Uh, so in this study, it actually looks specifically at sleep hygiene, uh, sleep restriction, relaxation techniques, behavioral experiments, uh, and insomnia prevention discussions, as well as sleep diary use. So these were the components of that CBT that they employed. Uh, And it basically focused on improving sleep duration and quality through these mind techniques and behavior changes. It's what we would typically resort to as maybe first choice for sleep problems. You know, instead of medication, we use this actually. This article also says CBT can also sort out addictive personality, specifically with alcoholism. Is CBT a better alternative to medication when it comes to Mm. addiction also? Well, actually, it's hard to say because this study actually looked at young binge drinkers with the definition of binge drinking being more more than four drinks on one occasion in the last one month. And we know binge drinking is actually quite common among younger adults. Yeah. Age between 18 to 35, um, and usually twice as common in men than in women. In fact, according to the 2019 National Health and Morbidity Survey in Malaysia, one in two or 45.8% of alcohol drinkers in Malaysia are binge drinkers. Wow. So that's actually quite a big uh, number. Uh, so this is an issue that's pertinent to us as well. Uh, but binge drinking does not equate to alcohol dependence or the colloquial alcoholism, right. you know, the phrase that we use. And uh, also we can't take the study as evidence for treating another serious mental health condition like alcohol dependence. But it seems to suggest that CBT focusing on improving sleep has some benefits in reducing binge drinking. Uh, the sample size is small, so I think we need to wait for a large multi-center study before actually making a definitive conclusion. But it's, you know, I, I think it's worth focusing on measures to improve sleep, especially, you know, using non-medication options to see if excessive drinking can be curtailed. Well, this next article, Dr. Philip, I chose it because I saw your picture on it. So <laughs> uh, they actually interviewed you about how elderly people above 60 years old have higher prevalence in mental health issue means the risk is higher with increasing age Mm. so why is this doctor why is the risk of mental health issues higher with increasing age and should we be worried for all our aging parents so now you're making me comment on me (laughs) (laughs) so what do you think of this author's uh, thoughts (laughs) should i be as critical as i am with the others yes you should (laughs) I think he's pretty spot on. (laughs) (laughs) Mental health problems uh, actually do typically get higher in prevalence as we age because of certain factors. One is our brain is an organ that degenerates just like all other organs in our body. So as we age, although we may have years of experience and manage so much in our lives, our shrinking brain cannot cope as well as it used to. And stress effects can be exaggerated. Other factors include, you know, isolation and loneliness, which is more common in elderly. This can trigger anxiety or early signs of depression. At the same time, this change in role or responsibility, you know, the person who was the breadwinner and is now sitting and waiting for others to help him or and then lack of financial support, poor mobility and increased losses. They all can cause anxiety or depression. Losses can be physical, such as decreased function, you know, after a stroke or heart disease, 
or even psychological, like loss of a job or loss of loved ones or peers. Another common loss is the empty nest syndrome when children leave home and migrate to other places to start their own family or work. And this can be a common trigger as well. As we age, our morbidity increases. So we may have to be on medication Mm -hmm. that sometimes may have side effects of causing depression and anxiety as well. So for example, beta blockers, which we use to treat hypertension is known to cause depression in some as well. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. And then there are those in care homes or nursing homes which actually research has identified uh, a higher risk of depression and anxiety. So I guess we should be worried about our aging parents, but I think we should also be worried about our own selves. And, you know, so planning and uh, learning to age is important. That's what the Malaysian Healthy Aging Society does to try and educate and build knowledge and understanding about aging and prepare ourselves for our own aging as well. Okay. But at what point, like, should we bring our aging parents or even ourselves to the psychologist's office or to the counselor's office as we age and show symptoms? Yeah. So, I mean, there are typical symptoms and signs that actually may suggest a psychological problem in elderly. I mean, if people are easily forgetful, you know, they may retain their remote memory. So they remember a lot of the old things that happened, but recent things, you know, they're very forgetful. That may be early stages of dementia. Mm -hmm. And dementia in the early stages, there are treatments that actually help reduce or delay the progression. There's no treatment that reverses it or makes it better, but at least it can be, you know, delayed. Mm -hmm. And that these medications and treatments only work in the early phases. So, you know, that's the time that you may want to get uh, an assessment done. And I think we need to bring a threshold down to say, well, I need to bring my aged parent for an assessment. 